0: You know, when my kids were born, um, I often was assigned the task by my wife of taking them to pediatrician appointments. And so I'd load up my kids and we'd go see Dr. Kozak, and he was a great guy, real fun. And I remember one day I took Knox, he was probably two or three, and you know, the doctor's tickling him and examining his ears and all that kind of stuff, and he asked me about Knox's vocabulary. So you know, does Knox have a lot of words? And I was like, yeah, he's got a lot of words and a lot of questions. And, uh, and the doctor said, I'll never forget it. He said, you better make sure you answer every one of those questions. And uh, at the time, his question that he always asked was, what's that? So what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? The Mary Jo came along, and her favorite question was, why? 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 You know, it's cute when they're toddlers, but then I I can imagine someday that little inquisitive mind that wants to know what's that and why, you know, will ask those same questions, but more to test boundaries, right? Like, hey, mom, dad gives you a rule, and you say, why? And that's not so much inquisitive, but on borderline rebellious. And and I know that from experience, because I ask my parents that a lot. Why, mom? Why, dad? And my mom would always answer, because I said so because i said so why because i said so and you know as a parent i understand why she did that because sometimes that's the best answer just because i said so you know parents uh, rely on that authority that's inherent in their role as parent i brought you into this world and i can take you out of this world right they they just have this authority Uh, In our passage, you know, we see this authority. Um, Paul talks about it both with regard to parents and what we're going to see in just a few minutes. I'm going to apply to employers. But parents and employers, they do. They lean on this authority to get our obedience. And when that doesn't work, they step up the heat a little bit. They threaten obedience. Perhaps they raise their voice. Maybe they bribe us with the promise of ice cream after the doctor. Whatever it is, they're trying to get us. To obey. But in our text this morning, we're going to see that as we continue growing up in Christ, taking on this new character that he's given us by his Spirit, both the methods for obtaining obedience and our motives for giving obedience have to change. And so this morning, I want you to see that Christian relationships at work and at home are transformed so that all obedience and all teaching is done for Jesus. You know, I think this has the potential of being a really revolutionary idea for somebody today, because what Paul is going to tell us is that there's more to parenting than raising well-adjusted, well-behaved children, and there's more to work than earning a paycheck. And so before we get out of here, I hope you really think that through and process what faithfulness to Jesus could look like at home and at work. All right, so let's jump back in. We're going to read this one more time, just so we're all good and set in it. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, in one sense, this is one of the most straightforward passages in the entire letter to the Ephesians. I mean, uh, Paul goes straight through these things, almost matter-of-factly. And he does so because you'll remember if you were here last week, he's continuing something he started last week which I told you is what scholars call a household code. It's this uh, systematic walkthrough of the various relationships that were present in ancient households, trying to give them guidance about how the earlier command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and especially back in uh, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, plays out in their everyday home life. And so Paul, you know, just kind of goes straight through with these household rules. And for whatever reason, um, as these Christian children and parents and husbands and wives and slaves and masters took up this identity in Christ, they needed some direction. They needed some instruction on what it would look like to take on this new identity in their homes. And as you can probably tell, just by reading it, maybe your Bible doesn't say bondservants, servants but uses the Greek word translated slaves, Paul wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't interested in abolishing the normal structures of the ancient home. Instead, he was calling every individual within that home to allow their own heart and perspective to be changed by Christ and trust that that would change the shape and outlook of the home. And the first place he continues with is this transformed relationship between parents and children. You know, it's an interesting thing that God created our world in such a way that almost every living, breathing thing has parents. I mean, human, every human being has a set of parents. And almost every animal has parents. You know, sponges, they don't have parents. They are born a different way. But almost every living thing has parents. And inbuilt in that is sort of the natural progression that one generation teaches the next generation how to live. Baby giraffes watch their mom walk and learn how to walk. Baby tigers watch their mom hunt and learn how to hunt. There's just this natural, instinctual, inbuilt thing that makes parents teach their children. But even though it's like universal, we can still agree that... The way your parents treat you, the way your parents raised you, depends a lot on the culture and time in which you were born. And what I mean by that is, like, most parents today cherish their children. And they sacrifice things that grandparents in the room would never have sacrificed for their children. Parents today love their kids and do what it takes to make sure they succeed in life. But, you know, it hasn't always been that way. And when Paul was writing to these Ephesians, they lived in a very different culture and time. I'm going to kind of explain this to you. I've preached about this before here, and you can track down that sermon online. But as the head of a Roman household, the father exerted almost unlimited control over his children. I mean, almost unlimited control. And, and for example, a father was permitted to sell his child into slavery up to three times. A father could disown his child at their birth. All he had to do, there was an elaborate ceremony where the mother presented the baby to the father. The father could turn his back on the child and symbolically reject the child as part of his family. Totally the father's prerogative. Furthermore, the father could punish them as harshly as deemed necessary, even to the point of death. Children remained under the authority of their fathers until their father turned 60 or until he died, whichever came first. And one commentator put it like this, a Roman child never came of age. Can you imagine that world? What it must have been like? Talk about hover parents always around. I mean, this dad exerted unlimited control. Children, therefore, owed their dad complete obedience. So for me, it's it's not surprising then that Paul would suggest children obey your parents for this is right. Right, The parents in the room heard the reader read that the first time, and they were like, amen, I heard that, yes, Lord. But Paul's advocating something more than the natural, instinctual obedience that biological beings give to their parents, whether they're tigers or humans. And he's talking more about the legal obligation that children owe their parents under Roman law. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So what Paul wants Christian kids, and there are a few in the room, a few teenagers too, what Paul wants Christian kids to understand is that obedience to their parents is part of what it means to live worthy of the calling to which they've been called. It was part of their devotion to Jesus. Furthermore, Paul says that this promise is actually undergirded by promises of blessing from God's Word. And so in verses 2 and 3, he quotes from Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment. Children, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Right, this promise of blessing originally came to the Israelites there at Mount Sinai, and it was reiterated later in Deuteronomy as they looked across the Jordan River into the promised land. Right, God had rescued Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and he was giving to them the constitution, the law that was going to guide their behavior as they lived in his promised land and in his presence. So there are ten commandments. The first four deal primarily with the Israelites relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And After those four commandments that regulate the Israelites relationship with God, what it looks like to be a true religiously devoted Israelite, he turns to their relationships with others. And the first command he gives, you shall honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. See, what God wanted his people to know is that when they got into the land, their blessing was going to be dependent on faithfulness to the Lord. If they abandoned the Lord and his ways, he was going to bring pestilence upon them and ultimately an invading army and they were going to be sent into exile. But right there in the Ten Commandments, there's something even deeper than that. It's not just that they keep the society functioning properly, but that the households work in the right way. That children hear their parents' words and obey them. You see, in God's way of doing things, parents were given the responsibility of more than instilling morals and ethics in their children. They were actually given the task of passing on the faith of their fathers. That's why uh, one commentator, he says this, a child's honor and obedience to their parents is the first important step in learning to honor and obey God. If a child dishonors and disobeys the parent, he or she will most likely have the same attitude toward God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that obedience to parents is a training ground for living a faithful life to the Lord? I mean, let me just ask you differently. Have you ever seen a child who was unrepentantly disobedient and rebellious to their parents, but had a consistent and blessed walk with the Lord? No, it can't happen. In fact, Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15, he says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. To try to cultivate a life of faithfulness to the Lord while at the same time dishonoring and disobeying your parents is the height of hypocrisy. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that disobedience to parents is right there among all the other wicked sins that's going to characterize the great falling away that happens at the end of the age. I mean, disobedience seems like, you know, kid stuff, right? This is what children should learn. But actually, an adult who never learns respect and obedience towards their parents has something in them that naturally disposes them towards rebellion and disobedience to God. And so while many children and teenagers occasionally disobey their parents, and, you know, for me, it was more than, a di- more than occasional. There was a pattern of my life in my teenage years where, man, if my parents could have taken me out of the world, I'm sure they would have. <laughs> Nevertheless, the conduct of Christian kids and teenagers should be different. Christian kids have put off the old self and put on the new, the spirits filling them up day by day so that they walk in obedience to their parents as they take on the character of Jesus. After all, when Jesus was forgotten in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph came back and found him. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2 that he went with them and remained in subjection to them. He obeyed his own parents. So kids and teenagers, right, look up here at me. Where are you? I want to see those little eyeballs. Listen to this. God calls you to obey your parents. If you know Jesus and you're living for him, the best thing you can do to show him your love for him is to obey your parents. That means when they say clean your room, you don't say why. You say yes ma'am, no ma'am. They say do your homework. You do your homework. They ask you to clean the dishes, or take out the trash, or feed the dog, or put your shoes away, or hang up your towel, or put your dirty clothes in the hamper. You say, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, because you love the Lord and you want to live a life of obedience to him. But now parents, this is where it gets tough for us. You see those things like clean your room, pick up your toys, these are things that are reasonable. Expectations. It's it's right for us to expect our children to keep their rooms clean. And if what we were after was complete obedience right away, there are things we could do to make sure our kids obeyed completely right away. We can yell. We can threaten punishment. We can follow through on punishment. We can make their lives miserable, etc., etc., etc. But Christian parents have to understand that there's more to parenting than getting your kids to obey. Right? Paul says the goal of Christian parenting is not a perfectly behaved star athlete, honor student, college graduate who'll take care of us when we're older. That'd be nice. But what we're really after is kids who know Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian parent. I mean, if you set out to have a star athlete, you'll parent in a way that produces a star athlete. You'll sacrifice certain things so that you can elevate private coaching. Or if you want a star student, you'll elevate things that produce a star student. If you want a quiet and submissive kid, you'll parent in a way to produce a quiet and submissive kid. But if you want a kid that loves Jesus, how would you parent? Well, Paul says you shouldn't provoke your children to anger but you should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And these two words, discipline and instruction, are almost synonyms. You can just exchange them one for the other. Even your you know, college thesaurus will tell you they're about the same. But really what they are, Paul's using them almost as two sides of the same coin. Right? He has one goal in mind, which is to bring kids up in the Lord. But there's two facets of it. The discipline and instruction, or the training and admonition. On the one hand, discipline or training is the practical hands-on guidance that Paul envisions a Christian parent giving to their kid. And on the other hand, the instruction is the verbal teaching where you correct and say, hey, what you did there was wrong, and I'm going to tell you why it was wrong. Right? That is what Paul's after, is both sides of the same coin the practical hands-on training and the verbal correction right what Paul means is that Christian parents are supposed to live out their faith in such a practical way that they include their children in it this is the training the practical hands-on that when you sit down at the dinner table and you're gonna pray you say hey would would you mind offering the prayer today when they read their Bible they do it in a way that their kids see them prioritizing their relationship with God they involve their kids in worship and explain why we do the things we do. I mean, the songs we sing are catchy, but maybe the kids don't know them that well. And so maybe we should talk about why we sing the songs we sing. And then the instruction is the correction that comes after. Now, hey, in church today, you weren't paying attention. Or while we were praying, your eyes were open, and you weren't being respectful and reverent. God expects that when we go to him in prayer, we do so in a reverent way. That's what Paul means when he says the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And actually, the Israelites are really a wonderful example of the way this all should play out. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you want to turn there, you can. It's going to be on the screen. You can write it down too. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, through nine, Moses says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them Again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, this is an all of life. I don't know if we should use this word. Indoctrination. Bringing kids up in the Lord where he defines what our family does. Can't say, do as I say, and not as I do. That never works, not in anything, much less in their relationship with the Lord. All you do there, if you, te- if you give your kids a bunch of rules, heaping them up and saying, hey, you better obey, you better obey, you better obey, that's a recipe for provoking them to anger. But if you involve them in your life, in your life with the Lord, you're bound to see it happen where they grow up expecting to go to church and to read their Bible and to pray. And so a home life like this with a transformed relationship between parents and kids is possible. You don't have to have exasperated kids who are always on the verge of blowing up. You don't have to have frustrated parents. Instead your home can be an, like an, uh, an incubator where kids grow up to be people who live for Jesus and make a difference in the world. As I was was reviewing this this morning, trying to think through this, make sure I had a real clear image, And, and this is what I think about. You know, each of us, we know that in the back of our minds, Jesus wants us to share our faith with others. You know that, I know that. We should be evangelists, ready to tell people what Jesus has done in our lives. And yet it just may be that for parents, the biggest impact they'll have for the kingdom of God is not being a Billy Graham who preaches to packed auditoriums, people who just line the aisles when they sing Just As I Am. But it's the daily disciplined instruction that they provide their kids to bring them up in the Lord. That that will be the biggest impact many of us make in the kingdom. And that's a really, really worthy thing. Paul never says here in the book of Ephesians, go door to door, trying to win as many converts as possible. But he does say, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, so that is the transformed home between parents and children. But if this obedience to kids is natural, instinctual, we all understand it, Y'all all all agree with me, right? When we come to this next part, we struggle a little bit to find connection. And so let's keep reading here in Ephesians 6, 5. Paul says, "Bond bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord whether he's a bond servant or is free masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him now I'm gonna go ahead and tell you I'm gonna talk about this as a transform relationship between employers and employees but I'm doing that because of this. I want to fully acknowledge how uncomfortable this passage makes me as a preacher. Right? I mean, after this summer, the protests and the uh, events that caused them, I mean, I think all of us are a little bit on edge when we come to these kinds of issues. I mean, whether we wanted to or not, uh, most of us have thought about slavery in America. What that means is there any lingering effect of that? Does it change the way we view people? Right? so we've thought about this and we have maybe our own views and opinions about it, but we're not prepared for Ephesians six five through nine, where the scriptures seem to approve of the institution of slavery. Paul actually speaks to slaves, he tells them they ought to obey their masters, he speaks to masters about how they should treat their slaves. And just like hits us out of nowhere and you know we probably have unbelieving friends who'd be glad to remind us that the Bible is a backwards book and here's proof positive. But I don't believe that and so I want you to keep this in mind as we're working through it. Right, that In the ancient world and the Roman Empire is no exception slavery was so ingrained into the society that at the time Paul's writing there are probably more slaves in the Roman Empire than there are freed people. Slaves could become a slave in many different ways. They could willingly sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. They could be forced into slavery to pay off debts. They could be made a slave as punishment for their crime. They could be made a slave as a prisoner of war. Or they could volunteer to be a slave for the purpose of social advancement. Most slaves in the Roman Empire had agreed to a term. You're gonna be a slave for five years, seven years. Or they agreed to a price with their master up front. they could buy their freedom for a certain amount. So what would happen is a slave would sell himself into a family where he'd have free room and board and work for a predetermined amount of years. After the fact, the master would set him free and if he'd done a good job, the master might turn around and make him the steward of his household. So he went from being a slave to being like the master's right-hand man, like Joseph in Potiphar's house. So slavery had a very different connotation in the ancient world. In fact, there was almost no racial dimension to slavery whatsoever, at least not in the color of a person's skin. Rather it was national than ethnic. And so slaves could live these comfortable lives, free room and board, but understandably many of them were mistreated. and They were valued as little more than property. And so the household codes from the period reflect this mentality and the the pagan philosophers would talk about the things masters should do in order to make sure their slaves obeyed and they relied heavily on fear in fact um, they often said that fear was useful in relating to a slave because fear produced greater loyalty that's an official quote from one of these high-minded philosophers And so we come to then to Paul's household code with all of this in the back of our mind. And what he says to slaves doesn't match up with our understanding of it as 21st century people. But in the context of the first century, what he says is absolutely surprising. And I just want you to think about two things. First, he addressed the slaves directly. Never happened in ancient household codes. Instead, philosophers would tell masters what they should tell their slaves, But like the wives and the children before them, Paul understood that slaves weren't property. They were people made in the image of God. And in the context of Ephesians, these are Christian slaves. People whom the Father has set his love upon before the foundation of the world. People for whom Christ had died. People who have been filled by the Spirit and were now trying to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. I mean, Paul knew these people were accountable to God for their actions. And so he said, obey your masters as you would to the Lord. Second though, Paul addresses slaves on equal ground as masters. I mean, his exhortation shows us that Paul has no use for the fear, the threatening that was common from first century pagan slave masters. Instead, he reminded masters that, this is verse 9, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Think about what that means. We could paraphrase it and say, Paul says, hey masters, I know that you have these slaves who live in your household. And from the world's perspective, you're the boss. You decide what goes and they have to obey you. But think about what you know about Christ, that he's your Lord and their Lord. From his perspective, he doesn't see you as a free person or as a slave person. You're all bound to him, responsible to obey him completely. There's no partiality with him. He couldn't care less if you're a slave or a free person. What he cares about is your heart. Paul addressed these slaves on equal ground as their masters. And so taken together, Paul's approach in exhorting Christian slaves and masters really demonstrates how Christianity was transformed transformed the institution of slavery. I mean, in the West, slavery was abolished due to the work of Christians in England. William Wilberforce, John Newton, the former slave trader turned songwriter who wrote Amazing Grace, um, George Whitfield, the great preacher. These men were responsible for the abolition of slavery in England and in America, though it happened far later than we might would have liked, it was Christian abolitionists who kept moving the ball down the field saying that our Constitution declares that all men are created equally before God. They saw their abolition movement as faithfulness to Christ. I mean, Paul had told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He told the Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in his letter to Philemon, which is short, and you could read this afternoon, Paul addresses the slave master, Philemon, as Paul sends his letter back to him by way of his runaway slave, Onesimus. And this is what Paul tells Philemon. Receive Onesimus, his slave, no longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially a brother to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. What I want you to know as we think about the Bible's teaching on slavery. Paul was no revolutionary, wasn't interested in tearing down society, burning it to the ground. He knew that what God was after was men and women... Whose hearts had been radically transformed by Christ so that they put off their old self, were renewed in the spirit of their mind, and were transformed day by day into the likeness of Jesus. He knew that baked into that was the solution for all of society's problems. That as individuals, and y'all listen here, Holy Spirit wants to speak this to somebody. That as God transforms individuals, societies get turned upside down. That's what Paul is after. And so there is this baked-in bomb in Christianity that the kingdom has already begun. One day, all wrongs will be made right. And we, Christians, get to see it happen as a foretaste in our midst. So with that said, does Paul's exhortations to slaves and slave masters have any connection, application to people living today? Well, really quickly, I think if we're careful, we can draw some analogies between what it means to be an employer or an employee from what Paul tells these slaves. And I know, you know, being a working person sometimes feels like you are a slave, just a slave to the bills, slave to the boss, living paycheck to paycheck. But Paul, as you know, there is more to work than earning a paycheck. There is more to being a leader or a manager than moving up. I mean, Paul tells the slaves to obey with a sincere heart, As they would Christ, not by way of eye service, as a people pleaser, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, and not to man. The key idea here in Paul's instructions is sincerity, or to obey from the heart. See, apparently, employees in every place and time have been tempted to do just enough work to get the boss off their back, Or to only work hard when the boss is around. I mean, regardless of whether the boss man sees it or not, Paul wants us to do what we know we should do. Now, I I personally, it's been a few years since I worked outside the church. But when I was in college, I worked in a warehouse, which was the best place for a college kid to work. Because among the rows of shelves stacked to the brim, my boss used to always say, stack them high and sell them cheap. We had stuff stacked to the ceiling, and I could go and find a little spot behind a pallet and just kind of take it easy. I could see the front of the warehouse, and if my boss came in, I could pick up my broom and act like I was busy at work. That is working as a people pleaser, only rendering eye service. I love being in stores now, and you, you maybe turn down an aisle, and there's an employee at the end with a face mask and an apron looking at their phone. You know, and they see you coming and they tuck it in their pocket and get back to work doing shells. No, I see you there. I see you. Paul wants Christian employees to understand that what Christ is after is something more than the external obedience they're tempted to offer to their boss, right? Paul says the work we do for our employers should be from a willing heart, a wholehearted commitment to do what we know is right, as if we were working for Christ himself. Because we are. Paul says in Colossians three seventeen that whatever we do, whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You know, it's, it's absolutely true that our employers and our managers hardly ever see all the hard work we put into our jobs. And because of that, we think, what's the point? I work myself to the bone for this guy, and he never even so much as says, thank you. But Paul says, you're not working for your boss. That your job's not about earning a paycheck. That the Lord has put you in this place to work for him. You're not looking for your boss's commendation, you know, the certificate at the end of the year that says employee of the year, the special parking place, the pin on your apron. That's not what you're after. What you want is what Paul says in Ephesians 6.8. Whatever anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. It just may be that the thankless job you spend your time and energy doing becomes the thing that Jesus is most proud of in your life. Whatever good you do, you receive it back from the Lord. So listen... Christian employees should always do their best work, always following through on the, the employer or the manager's direction with a wholehearted willingness to do what they're told because they believe that Jesus has put them in that spot for that purpose, and he's got their back. It's what my parents used to tell me. Cream always rises to the top. So you work hard every day, the Lord will take care of you. You focus on being faithful in the little things, you'll be entrusted with much. This is what Paul is after from these employees. But see, Christian employers also experience a change. Paul tells slave masters to stop threatening their slaves. Instead of relying on that threatening behavior, they're supposed to, get this, quote, do the same to them. That is mind-blowing. In a culture where masters had unlimited authority over their slaves, do the same to them. There's a reciprocity. They go back and forth. They do the same to each other. and It blows me away. I mean, I've really wrestled with it because it's not really evident what exactly Paul means when he says do the same to them. What exactly is he talking about? And, and I don't know. I mean, there are probably ways that first century slave masters tried to weasel their way out from under it and tried to get out from the full force of it. But I want you to think about how radical the reversal of relationships is. It's exactly what, Paul, uh, what Mike, Paul, Mark, what's your name? Mike prayed um, earlier that Jesus told his disciples after they're debating amongst themselves, who's the greatest? Who gets to call the shots among the disciples? Who's the right-hand man to Christ? Jesus overhears and is sort of tickled by you know, this debate. How hard-headed they are. He says, listen, the way it is among the Gentiles, how they lord their authority over one another, saying, hey, I'm the boss here. Don't you know that I'm the one who sets your hours, who makes your rules? I could write you off this schedule completely. That's lording authority over another. He says, it's not going to be that way among you. For whoever wants to be the greatest among you must become the least. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Paul thinks about Christian slave masters and, by extension, Christian employers, he wants them to feel this responsibility to serve their slaves, to find a way to do good to them sincerely. And I mean, I think Christian employers today ought to heed his advice. You know, they make lists, the best companies to work for. Even in the secular world, people understand that employees are more productive, more likely to come into work and give it their best if their managers and bosses value them. Why is it that Zappos, the online shoe retailer, that lets employees bring their dogs to work (laughs) is more respected than the small businesses owned by mom and pop Christians. I think we ought to take Paul's advice that when we find ourselves as employers, and I don't just mean that you've got a Fortune 500 company that you're calling the shots for. I mean when you take your car into the Take 5 Jiffy Lube you got guys running around doing stuff. How do you treat... They're working for you. How do you. Do you do good to them in that moment, or are they just kind of the servants? I just get to work, no chit-chat, roll your window up as quick as possible. Or do you smile? When people are bagging your groceries at HEB, what a thankless job, Noel. But we appreciate what you do. I don't know how y'all fit all those stuff in the bags. I put the wrong thing. <laughs> I put cardboard boxes in there with Diet Cokes and I get out there and my bag's ripped. Thank you. God has put us in position, whether we own a company or whether we work as a manager, to have people who do service jobs. And in those moments, we're not there to say, man, taking a long time on those bags, you know, come on, hurry up. We're there as an extension of what God is doing in the world. He sent us out so we ought to do good to them sincerely smiling thanking them that's what Paul's after he wants us to have a transformed relationship with the people who the world thinks work for us and so over the last two weeks we've seen what a home life in Christ is really all about seen that wives are called to willingly submit to their husbands husbands are called to sacrificially love their wives parents are called to stop you know being angry with their kids and yelling to get their way causing them to get angry but we should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children are called to obey. Masters are called to do the same to them, to treat them well, with goodwill, as if they were serving the Lord. And slaves are called to obey their masters as they are Christ. And I firmly believe that a home life like that today look different, obviously. We do live in 21st century America and not 1st century Ephesus. But it's still possible That our homes can be places of joy, where Christ dominates, where he's like the aroma in the air after you bake fresh cookies, that people step into our homes and know not just the thing on the wall says it, but they know it's true. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. They'll see that in the way we relate to each other. But listen, the biggest obstacle to getting there is the disconnect that you and I feel in our hearts believing that what God really cares about not how we treat people at work how we treat people at home but he's interested in you know the 1045 to noon on Sunday that's what God is really after we're like the kid who says why God do you care how I treat my employees why do you care if I don't do what my boss says But remember Jesus transforms relationships at work and at home so that all our obedience and teaching is for Him. He really is in the business of taking people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and making them alive together with Him. He's interested in taking your old self, which is corrupted by deceitful desires, and removing it, renewing you in the spirit of your mind, and helping you to put on a new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's possible to willingly submit to sacrificially love, to obey, to bring kids up in the discipline and structure of the Lord, to obey the boss as to Christ, to treat your employees with respect. It's possible if you'll let the Spirit work through you to do it. And so this morning, as we close, I don't know where your family, where your life is, how off track you are with the home life Paul identifies in Ephesians 5 and 6. If you're a long way off or if you're just there, the solution's the same. First, you have to come to Jesus. He invites you. I told you that when we started. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden by your home life. Take my yoke upon you. Learn what it means to be a servant to all, to submit to one another as I did. I'm gentle, And lowly in heart. Maybe we've been talking about Jesus all day, and I'm talking about him like he's a real person or something. And maybe that just astonishes you that you don't know Jesus like that. Well, I want you to know getting to know him like that is simple, but it's never easy. In fact, Jesus says in the book of Luke that if anybody would come after him, anybody would follow him, must take up their cross daily deny themselves, and follow. What we're talking about this morning, pursuing a home life in Christ, where people do everything for him, is a daily act of self-denial. And if you've never begun that, I'd love to talk with you about it today, help you figure out what it's going to mean for you to take up your cross and to deny yourself, follow him. But maybe you know Jesus, like many of you do, and your home life, your marriages, your parenting, your life at work is just a little off track. And you need a correction. You need to get it back to where it's supposed to be. Remember what the Apostle John said. I mean, he'd seen Jesus for three years interact with weak and weary people. And he encouraged his church like this. He said, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, you're not so far off track that God can't get you back where he wants you to be. So this morning, repent of your sin. Repent, like I said last week, of your dysfunction. Where is it in your relationships at home and work that you're finding problems? Is it with your spouse? Is it with your kids? Is it with your boss? Name that to the Lord. Admit what he already knows. God, I'm having a difficult time dealing with my kids lately, and I'm not handling it well. Forgive me for flying off the handle and screaming when I won't want to be that way. And help me be patient and gentle with them. However far you are off track, that prayer, that honest laying yourself bare before the Lord will get you right back to where he needs you to be. And lastly, this one's important, if you are off track, it do well for you as a family to have a family meeting. You ever have one of those? Sit everybody down after dinner and say, all right, folks, we need to talk. But lately, we've not been treating each other right. And this morning at church, that guy with the mustache kept talking about it, and I decided that things have to be different around here. And I just want you all to know that as much as it depends on me from this day forward I'm committing to pursuing this kinda home go around the table let people say what they feel what they feel what they think get down on your knees hold hands and ask God to bless the commitment you make and watch what he does